Good evening, brothers and sisters. All right, I think I finally got that. All right, I got the okay. Well, it is good to be back. I love evening services because they're a little bit more laid back. We get to have a little bit more fun. And so we're going to have fun tonight, ladies and gentlemen. And I hope you brought your Bibles. Amen? Amen. All right, let's open up to Exodus 20. Uh, before we get started, I read and I pray us in. Uh, I just want to note a few things. Uh, today is the day that we officially begin our formal introduction to the Ten Commandments and the doctrine of the law of God. Today, or tonight I should say, I want to go through key arguments and texts that provide the basis for our doctrine of the law of God and see how this law has relevance for us today. So while doing this, I will be arguing against certain erroneous objections against our doctrine of the law. And our doctrine of the law is, is, is the doctrine that I'm coming from, from the uh, Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. If there is one error in the Christian church that has been most persistent for the past two generations, at least in my view, but I would argue for many others, I would argue that it is the error of antinomianism. Antinomianism. And children, this literally means against or oppose to the law. This error, and we should include the heavy term here of heresy, comes in a variety of flavors, primarily dogmatic or practical antinomianism. Dogmatic antinomianism, simply put, teaches that there is no moral obligations of Christians in any sphere of life. Typically, all one must do is assent intellectually to be considered a Christian. In our age, this view is often described as the free grace movement. Um, and it is ascribed to those, by, uh, those within the Baptist and even conservative circles. On the other hand, practical antinomianism, practical antinomianism is not so much of a creed or an express teaching. Rather, it stems more likely from the social milieu of our day and age. There is much ignorance of what God teaches, even among professing Christians. And this informs how they live their lives. Put in last, week terms, uh, last week's terms, uh, they don't know their story. They don't know the story of redemption. And so they don't know what to do or how to behave in light of that story. So then, this is why a close examination of key texts are in order for this evening. We have friends and colleagues given over to this error. And I cannot possibly cover all the pertinent texts on this subject. Uh, this would take till the end, if not more, of when Tiago will be back. But I am prepared to, ask, uh, I am prepared to answer uh, any and all questions. If you have a question about any text that I don't speak on tonight, please come and find me. I want to talk about it because it is important and it's also a little fun for me. Also, I have divided our exploration of this topic into two parts. This week, we will look at the Old Testament on the law of God. And next week, we will look at the New Testament. Uh, in, uh, excuse me, in the New Testament. It printed on both sides. I don't like that. That throws me off. I'm sorry. That's, that's going to happen all night. All right. So with that said, let us begin our exploration of the Old Testament with the reading of Exodus chapter 20. And then after we read, we will pray. Exodus chapter 20, verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, 
but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall do not you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that the days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us, and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Let us pray. Father, your word condemns us. Lord, every last jot and tittle of this law in its outward performance and in its inward performance, Lord, we have not done. Lord, we have not loved you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. But Lord, thank you for a Christ who did. Lord, we thank you that we have a Christ who redeemed us and has forgiven us of our sins and is in his presence and his power and his declaration upon our lives that we come before you now. Help us to see that the law is still relevant to our lives and that is indeed a rule of law and faith and practice uh, for those who are in Christ Jesus. Lord, we love you. We thank you. Please be with us during this time. We ask this in your son's name. Amen. So, the Old Testament on the law. As 21st century believers, we come to the text of the Old Testament with proper lenses of the New Testament. We, as Christian believers, live in the age of the benefits of Christ's resurrection and the full disclosure of God's revelation in the New Testament. We also live in an age in which much has been faithfully written and expounded concerning the New Testament's priority and how we understand the Old Testament. We have a lot of gifts being in this time and age that we do live in, particularly on this side of the cross. However, like all good gifts, man knows how to mess it up. With all these benefits, it may be tempting to neglect a proper reading of what the Old Testament actually has to say about itself. This is a temptation that has overtaken many within the Christian church. For us, it's easy to write off the Old Testament as this strange artifact, right? This strange thing before our New Testament. Something that we all affirm to be God's authoritative word, but somehow we believe it, is fulfilled, and somehow it's obsolete. What, what do we do with this? It bewilders us. The temptation might come to us. Why then is this old relic important to read? One huge problem of many that comes uh, from this dismal approach to the Old Testament is a failure to understand the law of God in its own right. And it is the failure that many now have walked into errors, such as antinomianism. So then, I want us to get a good starting definition of what we say, or what we mean when we say the Old Testament. So that's our first point, a good definition of the Old Covenant, I should say. So our first point, the Old Covenant. The term testament is simply another word for covenant. The Old Covenant can be described in two ways, two definitions, as either one, a body of literature that we can put as either Genesis to Malachi sometimes, 
But more specifically, it's often Genesis to Deuteronomy, that body of literature. Uh, And this body of literature, Genesis to Deuteronomy, is often even called the Book of the Law or Torah. And so it gets complicated fairly quickly. But just remember that. Book of the Law, Torah, that's Genesis to Deuteronomy. That's the Old Covenant. Or, we can see it in this broader definition, that is a legal agreement between Israel and Yahweh. It is this second description, the one of the legal agreement between Israel and Yahweh that we are concerned with this evening. A covenant, and this is a simple definition, is simply an agreement between two or more parties. The old covenant is the agreement that Israel entered into with God. This agreement has its foundation in the events of Abraham in chapters 12, 15, and 17. It is further elaborated upon with Israel through the mediator Moses, where we get the rest of our, those first five books. And it found its initial fulfillment during the reign of David and his son Solomon. This covenant agreement was made by the conquering king God, in which the conquered people Israel humbly submitted themselves to God. And this was the pattern of many ancient Near Eastern covenants. God promised a blessed physical life in the land of Canaan, and Israel would be marked by their unique standing as God's covenant people. In order for the people to live in the land in this blessed state, God gave them stipulations. In other words, if Israel did these things, they got that. It was quid pro quo. We're common with that nowadays. If Israel obeyed God's stipulations or law, they would live blessed in the land of Canaan. And if not, if they disobeyed, they would be cursed. At first glance, this seems somewhat cut and dry, right? This relationship. But we should note that God did not have to enter into covenant with Israel. God did not have to condescend to give Israel blessings for their obedience. Who's Israel? They're human beings, right? They're just people. Israel's obedience should have been given to God solely because He is God and that they are His creatures. That's it. But by God giving a reward for their obedience, we should say that this covenant is thoroughly gracious. These rewards weren't necessarily for God to provide. Uh, He didn't have to do this necessarily. So we can say it is a gracious covenant in this way. However, I want our focus to be on this. The means by which Israel experienced these blessings were based upon a works principle. If you keep the commandments, you will live blessed in the land. So we can summarize the old covenant in this way. It is a graciously provided covenant of God in which God promised physical blessings to Israel. If obedience then blessings. If disobedience, then curse. The rules and the laws of the Old Covenant are the stipulations that the people must keep in order to live happily in the land. Of course, this is a very condensed and shortened articulation of what the Old Covenant is, um, nor is it without um, questions, I'm sure. If you have questions, come find me later. But we can accurately summarize that the Old Covenant is simply an agreement between God and Israel concerning temporary life in the physical location of Canaan. So then, this moves, let's move on to our second point. The question comes, where do the Ten Commandments fit into this Old Covenant? And this leads to our second point, the Ten Commandments as moral law. We assert that the Ten Commandments are the express stipulations that the people were to obey in order to live blessed in the land of Canaan. But we should also affirm that the Ten Commandments are the bedrock upon which all the other rules of the Old Covenant are to be understood. The Ten Commandments are unique and can be differentiated from the other laws of the Old Covenant. Theologians have properly seen a threefold division or distinction of the law. There's the moral law the civil, and the ceremonial. The Ten Commandments constitute the moral law. Civil laws are the laws that are concerned with various legal cases and laws that dealt with living in the community of ancient Israel under the Old Covenant. And the ceremonial laws concern laws regarding ancient Israelite worship, 
such as the Levitical priests, the tabernacles, or the sacrifices. Clear as mud? Good. Uh, For those who are under the Old Covenant, they must have obeyed the entirety of all three sets of these laws uh, in order to live happily in the land of Israel. Though obedience was needed for all the commandments of the Old Covenant, it must be maintained that the Ten Commandments were the ethical underpinnings for both the civil and ceremonial laws. The essence of the Ten Commandments is more Uh, is moral and ethical. They deal only with our duty to God and to man. They were distinct from other laws in this way, that they were purely ethical. In contrast to this quick, uh, in contrast to this is this quick example. Um, The example uh, of where Israel was to worship at various times. The other laws of the Old Covenant that weren't moral in Genesis through Deuteronomy dictate how and when the people were to meet with God. Sometimes these locations changed, or possibly these previous locations became obsolete, such as when um, uh, the people came in and brought the tabernacle and uh, erected the um, temple at Jerusalem. And so other places of worship were then discredited. They became obsolete. See, uh, we should see this, that these are not binding and eternal as the moral laws are of the Old Covenant. You see, brothers, God's moral, uh, God's moral law does not change because God's morality does not change. God does prescribe laws that are meant to become obsolete, but it's because God baked it into the DNA of those laws, right? But this is not the case for the Ten Commandments. They are moral and thus eternal, and binding. This is one reason why we need good categories when dealing with the Scriptures as closely as this. It saves us a lot of headache later down the road. So then, brothers, I believe it is important for us to see that the law or Torah, uh, the first five books of the Bible, indicates that there is a distinction between the moral law from the other laws of the Old Covenant, grammatically, in content. The Torah illustrates this in two ways, and this is where we're going to need our Bibles. So pick up your Bibles, this is about to become Bible time. All right, how the Ten Commandments, this is how uh, the Torah illustrates this for us, um, is how they're different, how they're unique, is that, one, how they are presented, how the Ten Commandments were originally received by Israel, that's one way in which they're unique, and two, how they were preserved for Israel is also how they were unique. So first, notice that in Exodus 19, uh, Moses goes up to meet with God in order to prepare the, uh, uh, the people of Israel to enter into covenant, but that he came back down to further instruct the people not to touch the mountain. So see this in chapter 19, verse 25. Look there with me. Chapter 19, verse 25. So Moses went down to the people and told them, if most people were to just assume, who uh, did God give the Ten Commandments to? Most people would probably immediately say, uh, well, to Moses, right? We see that picture of, you know, the old movie, him coming down with the two tablets, you know, walking down. That's what most people have in their minds. But originally, that's not how it happened. Moses is down on the mountain. So it is while Moses is going down with Israel, uh, down to Israel, that God speaks the Ten Commandments to Israel. Notice this in the very next verse. So it's chapter 25, or verse 25 of chapter 19. And the very next verse is what? And God spoke all these words. I'm sorry, let's just start at verse 25. So Moses went down to the people and told them about that law, about not to touch the mountain. Verse 1 of chapter 20. And God spoke all these words. Moses is down there. God's up there. God's speaking, and everyone hears. So God originally gives the Ten Commandments by direct communication to Israel. After God speaks directly, the people are frightened by God, but Moses gives an, ex- uh, an explanation for why God spoke in this manner. manner. We see this in verse 20 of chapter 20. Is that, do not, sin, uh, do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. 
God uses the Ten Commandments to display His glory as lawgiver so that the people know who they are entering into covenant with. It is at this point that the people of Israel tell Moses to go back up and speak to God for them. They're scared. So, what we need to take away is the Ten Commandments were unique. God spoke them directly to Israel. After Moses uh, Moses goes up and speaking directly to God, we see this in verse 22 of chapter 20, he receives the various civil and ceremonial laws, often called the covenant code or the book of the covenant. The book of the covenant is how it's described in uh, in our scriptures. And this stems from chapter 20, verses 22, all the way to chapter 23 through verse 33. Okay? It is these laws of the covenant code often called ordinances, um, and we see that word 21, verse 1, and the Ten Commandments, often called the words, uh, verse 20, verse 1, that Moses came back to recount and write down for Israel. So it is both the Ten Commandments and the Covenant Code that he comes back down with and gives to Israel. So we see this in Exodus 24, verses 1 through 8. Let's turn there. Exodus 24, verses 1 through 8. Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship from from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come with him. Moses came up and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. So notice that the words of the Lord and all the rules, or ordinances. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord, meaning both the covenant code and the Ten Commandments. Uh, we, we can pause there. Moses and Israel have a covenant ceremony in which they voluntarily came under and they made covenant with God. The stipulations being the Ten Commandments along with the covenant code. After this, God says to Moses to come back to the mountain to receive, and he says this, the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. This is verse 12, if you want that reference, of chapter 24. Chapter 24, verse 12. The tablets of stone with the law and the commandment which I have written. So Moses is supposed to go back up, get these tablets with, uh, it's it's called this tablets of stone with the law and the commandment. But while Moses was also up there getting these tablets, God also gave more instructions concerning worship like the tabernacle and the priest. Our focus now turns to the stone tablets with the law and the uh, commandment written by God. But there may be ambiguity here. Do these stones have the Ten Commandments only, or are these the Ten Commandments with the additional laws, either the Book of the Covenant, or with the laws of the sanctuary, or both, or different laws? Who knows? There's a lot going on here. Amen? Yeah. We're talking about being faithful, and uh, the Ten Commandments, and one of them is not lying. That's also mean truth-telling. You can amen me. It's confusing. It's all right. Um... So then, there's a lot going on here. And the ambiguity of the synonyms, like law, commandment, and words, all synonyms, do not help us at all. The term words is most commonly used when speaking of the Ten Commandments, or the Ten Words. You often see that in your citations in your Bibles. However, law and commandments typically refer to the entirety of the laws in the Old Covenant, the ceremonial and the civil To complicate this matter further, these stone tablets are also called the tablets of the testimony in which we would, uh, which would be placed in the Ark of the Covenant. We see this in 31 verse 18. Turn there with me. 31 verse 18. And he, God, gave to Moses, I'm sorry, you're not done flipping, that's all right. We're going to take our time, because it's Bible time. There we go. 31 verse 18, And he, God, gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, uh, the, the testimony tablets of stone, written with the finger of God. Okay, that's new. 
So, with this being the testimony of tablets, some take this to mean that these are stone tablets that detail the narratives of the Exodus along with the various other laws, including the Ten Commandments. So we see the problem why so many people are confused by the distinction of the moral law and the law itself. I'm sure many of you can't even follow me as I'm going through this. Amen? <laughs> My man. Oh, children such as these. All right, so we see this problem. We see this problem. Is the moral law special or unique compared to the other laws that are found in the Old Covenant? Or are they just more the same? Should the Ten Commandments be our ethic if there is no distinction between those laws or the rest of the Old Covenant laws? This is where people have either given up exploring this issue or failed to see the distinction made by God. And it is here that we must keep pressing in our exploration of these texts. With our focus on the tablets of stone, we will conclude that the Ten Commandments, the moral law, was preserved alone in this unique way, written by the finger on the stone, compared to the other laws. This will be our conclusion, but we must keep pressing further. So let's keep going. After Moses had gone up to the third time, for a third time, to get the tablets from God himself, he heard more laws on the sanctuary and priests, chapters 25 through 31. In the end of their initial meeting, Moses came back down with the two tablets of testimony, tablets of stone, written with the finger of God. Uh, And uh, this is an important issue with this. Chapter 32, verses 15 and 16, it gives us a description of these tablets. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides. On the front and on the back, they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God, engraved on the tablets. So we have two tablets, both with writing on it. These tablets were written by the finger of God, uh, an expression of God's unique display of power and glory. This is actually the same expression used when God conquers the magicians, uh, the Pharaoh's magicians, right? Is that the magicians end up saying, this is the finger of God, seeing these powerful miracles God is doing. So this is the finger of God. It's a unique display of his power. In the account of Moses coming back down to the people, he has two tablets, both of them having God's writing on the front and on the back of it. Most likely, these tablets were copies of the same documents. One of them was for God, and one of them was for Israel. God got a copy, and so did the people. And this is how ancient Near Eastern covenants work. Someone got a copy of the covenant document, and so did the people. The suzerain and the vassal, the conquering king and the people. It's kind of like we get a carbon copy of the receipt after we make an exchange, right? That's ultimately the idea being expressed here. So I know for y'all who really like that expression, you know, you see the guy come down with big two tablets. Sorry, Uh, you know, I'm crushing some dreams here, but y'all can yell at me later. All right, so we get this idea, the two tablets, both stuff, one for God, one for people. And this is how the ancient Near Eastern works. They were proof or evidence of the fact that God had covenanted with Israel. It's one reason why they are called the tablets of testimony. They were proof for both of them that they have covenanted with one another. But while Moses was coming down with these covenant documents, he sees the people caught in idolatry. And we all know the story. In anger, Moses throws down the tablets at the foot of the mountain, indicating that the people broke covenant and not God. God's anger is kindled. Moses goes up again. He intercedes. Bim, bam, boom. God renews the covenant with Israel, and they are saved. Yea, God. Yea, Moses. It's a good story. I would read it. So God tells Moses to make new stones that God will again write upon. Chapter 34, verses 1 through 4. Let's read that together. 34, verses 1 through 4. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. We can pause there. <clears throat> so, 
So after another period of 40 days, Moses has a new set of tablets. But again, along with the story and narrative, God gives more rules. He gives additional laws that come along with the story and the command to write down these laws. Look at 34, chapter 27, or verse 27, I'm sorry, 34, 27. And the Lord said to Moses, Write these words, for in accordance with these words I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he is there with the Lord forty days and forty nights. He ate bread nor drank water. And he, I take that to be God, wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. So again, we have this difficulty. Tablets containing law and commandments are presented but they, are they just more than the Ten Commandments? Are they the Ten Commandments or more? This is the key here, and it is verse 28. Exodus 34, 28 explicitly states, He, God, meaning God, wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words. And we should note this, not the words of the covenant code, nor the ceremonial laws, right? It explicitly states the Ten Commandments. So then, with this key detail, we can and must properly deduce that the Ten Commandments are the law and commandments that God had originally transcribed in chapter 24, verse 12. It is not the various other laws. It is specifically the Ten Commandments. This is further evidenced by Moses recounting these events in Deuteronomy. So then, in Deuteronomy 10.4, Moses states clearly to the new generation that God wrote on the tablets in the same writing as before, the Ten Commandments that the Lord has spoken to you on the mountain out of the midst of the fire on the day of the assembly. So we get that, right? So Moses is commenting on these events right now. He's saying, this is exactly what happened. This is what is written, the Ten Commandments. If we look at Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 22, when he says, what was spoken on that day when he spoke out of the fire? is that he spoke the Ten Commandments, verse 22, and he added, no more. We should take this as indication that the Ten Commandments are unique to the Old Covenant. Thank you. I like this. All right. Again, it cannot be clearer. It is the Ten Commandments that God uniquely inscribed upon the tablets of stone with His own finger. It is this set of law that God used to serve as the beginning and basis for the Old Covenant stipulations. These laws and commandments are the foundation upon which all the other laws of the Old Covenant, both civil and ceremonial, are founded upon. It's the moral weight to them. All these other laws have their strength and weight in relation to the unique and weightier moral laws, the Ten Commandments. To give a quick application, brothers, notice that I did not hold up two verses from the Scripture and try to quickly deduce what we should believe. I could have gone quickly to Deuteronomy, right? It would have been bim, bam, boom, right? I could have done that. But I purposely wanted to show that this can be a difficult topic for some. And we aren't even touching the New Testament tonight. That complicates further even more. I hope this point showed that we must be like those in Acts 17, verse 11. We should be like the Bereans, not lazily accepting or dismissing any doctrine that comes our way. But we must be able to prove everything, and I mean everything that we hold confessionally, to the test of Scripture itself. And where Scripture gives us twists and terms, we don't take the easy route of saying, oh, yeah, yeah, uh, whatever so-and-so has to say. Pick whatever pastor, whatever theologian, whatever author uh, you might choose. There is a time and place to learn submissively. But if you personally, after study and devotion of the text of Scripture, cannot expound for someone else the doctrine you hold, you are being lazy. Take up the command that our Lord gave to us. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Make it a devotion to love God intellectually, 
through his word. Not cold and woodenly as a professor of religion, but as someone who knows that God speaks authoritatively in his word. Know your confession, know your arguments, but know God's holy word inside and out. Get to know what God has said. Love this book. It is life and it is devotion and love when we take the time to take the difficult path. The best things are oftentimes the most difficult things. Do the difficult thing. Take up and read. If you do, you will be accounted as noble before God, just as the Bereans, and before man. So then, brothers, if the foundation of God's preeminent covenant in the Old Testament Scriptures is the Ten Commandments, we should expect that it is the moral law and basis for all of our interactions with humanity. This brings us to our third point, the Ten Commandments prior to Sinai. I need a haircut. I believe if we can illustrate that the Ten Commandments were in effect, that they served as the moral basis for interaction with God prior to their introduction at Sinai, we have good reason to believe that this particular set of laws and commandments, the moral laws, were in effect before Sinai, before he gave the Ten Commandments. And I'll limit myself to two examples. And these two examples are going to be Abraham and Adam. What these examples are about to show us are examples of sin. But what we need is a good definition of sin. And the best definition of sin I have ever heard, uh, ever heard of comes from Good News Club. So, this is the Good News Club. If you know the Good Club's definition, uh, then say it with me. And I want children and adults because we're smaller. We need the adults. So, sin is anything that we think, say, or do that breaks God's law. All right, y'all. I need more participation than that. I'm this kind of preacher. I'm sorry. Sin is anything that we think, say, or do that breaks God's law. One more time for good measure. Sin is anything that we think, say, or do that breaks God's law. Very good. Good job, children and adults. Notice within that definition that God's law is the thing that is in relation to sin. That's why it's a good definition. The term term sin in both Hebrew and Greek is both ethical and legal in nature and in scope. If we don't have a law presupposed in our definition of sin, then we don't technically have sin. And if we're affirming that, that's a problem. A far larger problem. As John makes perfectly clear for us, sin is lawlessness, is anti-law, is antinomianism. Sin is anti-law. It is the breaking of a previously established rule for man. And the question presented to us now, as we're thinking about the Ten Commandments prior to Sinai, what law is being broken in our examples of Abraham and Adam? So first, Abraham. Everyone, turn to your uh, Bibles in Exodus, or I'm sorry, Genesis 20. Genesis 20. This chapter recounts the time in which Abraham wants to fly under the radar of Abimelech, a foreign ruler. Abraham lies about Sarah being his wife, and she is given over to the king to become his bride. This is not a good or holy situation that Abraham had gotten himself into. But God comes to Abimelech in a dream, warning him of his doom if he takes Sarah as his wife. Interestingly, Abimelech acknowledges God and states, Will you kill a righteous people? And in the innocence of his hands, both legal terms, righteous people and innocence, Abimelech has taken Abraham's wife because it was Abraham who lied. Abimelech confronts Abraham in verse, 20, uh, verse 9 of chapter 20. What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? Now, Abimelech's awareness of his sin, um, 
this awareness of his sin of taking Abraham's wife was divinely revealed. That's explicit in the text. So it could be argued that Abimelech's knowledge of his sin was dependent upon a revelation of God's moral law. I don't think that's the best way to read it, but I'll concede that point. But here's the nail in the coffin on this issue. Abimelech says to Abraham, You have done to me things, plural, that ought not to be done. Now the Lord did not explicitly mention Abraham's lying. It was Abimelech who brought that up and pleaded his case before God. And Abraham recognizes it as sin, though he tries to explain it away. What's happening here and what's the point? Let's get to it. We should note that Abimelech, a Gentile, knows of the moral law of God, and he is using it as the basis of his interactions with God and with man, Abraham. And again, that's what the Ten Commandments are, the moral obligations that man has with God and his fellow man. We can, at the very least, say from this episode that both Abimelech and Abraham had the essence of the law, the moral law, that duty to God and man, even though Abimelech was an outsider to the full revelation of God, and that both Abimelech and Abraham were prior to the giving of the Ten Commandments at Sinai. So, we could argue that the law of God was in effect and was known by all prior to Sinai. Both those who received God's fuller redemptive works, like Abraham, and even Gentiles who did not know God, like Abimelech. This event in Genesis 20 should make us ask this question. How did Abimelech intuitively know the law of God this moral law. I'm cheating a little bit here because I'm going to go to the New Testament. Because the answer comes from the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 2, verses 14 through 15. For the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires. They are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. That is, we should read either the Old Covenant or the Ten Commandments. They, Gentiles, show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse them or even excuse them. So you see, brothers and sisters, everything, everyone has the law, and we will see the neck in the following weeks. Paul is specifically thinking of the Ten Commandments. As image bearers of God, we have the moral law imprinted upon us in our minds, our wills, our hearts, even though it is marred by our sin nature. The moral law in its essence is inscribed into our very beings because the moral law is the same morality and the righteousness that God himself possesses. As image bearers, we quite literally reflect God's own morality. We know God's morality. We know the truth. But we suppress the truth in our unrighteousness and in our sin nature. And this is where our second example of Adam comes into view. Brothers, what was Adam's sin? It was taking that fruit, right, that God barred him from. And Adam ate of that tree, and he died. But that command to not eat of the tree had a much broader essence to the, uh, of the moral, moral law as the background, backbone or the weight to this command. What really made this uh, command not to eat of the tree was not so much the command in and of itself, but the one who was speaking it. There was something moral to it. The command to not eat was a test to see whether Adam, like Israel, would know who he was serving. This command was a question to Adam. God was confronting Adam with this question. Who is your God? You or me? In the presentation of the fruit, God is telling Adam what he already knows intuitively as an image bearer of God. God is saying to Adam, you shall have no other gods before me. You see, Adam had the moral law by nature. He did not need it written upon stone. He had it engraved upon his heart, and that's what makes his sin his lawlessness, so potent and so, so severe. It was not a law that was observed, uh, that was obscured by sin, nor was it a law that he claimed he did not have. 
as if these are excuses that we could use for our own sins. But when he took that fruit, Adam was acting in rebellion and lawlessness against his God and his lawgiver. Friends, sin is not merely doing something that God did not, uh, told you not to. Even the smallest acts of sin is a revolt, a moral, legal revolt against God and his moral law. It is a revolt of lawlessness against God and his own character. This is why God must punish sin, because ultimately it is against his own righteous and lawful character. God must punish sin. Why? Because God loves God. Brothers, sin is not some nebulous notion of bad in us. It's not like it's the dark side of the force, children. Sin has an ethical and legal weight to it. Sin is lawlessness, and we are lawless by nature. It is our rejection of God's moral law, our rejection of Him that sets our dilemma as sinners before the holy and law-giving God. This leads to our fourth and final point, the Ten Commandments in the promised new covenant. So we see that the book of the law, the Torah, viewed the Ten Commandments as the moral bedrock of the Old Covenant, the Old Covenant stipulations, and it also saw it as the universal moral code that everyone is obliged to obey. But two problems still remain. We as Christians are not under the Old Covenant, nor are we able to give obedience to the law in our sinful nature. But thankfully, both these problems have the same answer. The answer lies in Christ and His new covenant. So first, the argument goes, we have no obligation to the old covenant, and therefore the Ten Commandments cannot be binding upon us. And our answer as new covenant believers should be, yes, duh, to be nice about it. Of course. Of course, our covenant, the new covenant, doesn't hold out the promise of a nice life in the physical land of Canaan. If we obey the Ten Commandments, we don't receive the reward of a vacation to ancient Israel. I don't think many people would like that. At least I wouldn't. But that's not what we are arguing for, and that's not our covenant. The promise of the, of the new covenant is eternal life and communion with God through our mediator, Christ Jesus. And it's not upon our obedience to the moral law that we receive this promise or blessing of eternal life and communion. Even repentance and faith, the things that we must do to inherit the kingdom of God, repent and believe the gospel, we should not be, uh, these things, these commands should not be understood as conditions or stipulations that have to be met in order to get to God. Repentance and faith are actually the blessings that God gives us as those He has chosen in Christ Jesus before the foundation of the world to save from sin. Our covenant, the new covenant, is not about our works or what we've done. It's about the work of Christ alone. The one we completely trust to give us those blessings for communion with God. For us, the moral law, the Ten Commandments, is not how we get into Canaan. The moral law is how we express our gratitude for the redemption that Christ Jesus has brought for us. It is the fruit of God's work within us. This answers the second objection as well. In our sinful natures, we are not able to please God. We're not. In our sin natures, we cannot please God. But Christ's salvation saves us from three things primarily. Christ saves us from the penalty, the power, and the presence of sin. The penalty, power, and presence of sin. Since Christ took our punishment, we no longer bear the penalty of sin. And in heaven, we will be free from the very presence of sin. But note that we are also no longer, we no longer have that power of sin in our lives. We don't have that awful taskmaster after us. That once lawless heart is no longer lawless. We are, as Paul says, new creations. This heart, this once lawless heart is no longer lawless. This heart that longs to do and love God's law is the blessing of the new covenant. It is, not the work of, it is the work of Christ applied to you through the power of the Holy Spirit. 
This new heart is prophesied by the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31, verse 33. And I recommend everyone to memorize this. Jeremiah states there, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. And here is the nail and coffin of this issue. And I will write. Who's writing? Yahweh. What's he writing? His law. Where is he writing it? Our hearts. I will write it on their hearts. There are only two things that God writes in the Bible. His law and the names in the book of life. What Jeremiah prophesying is evoking the imagery of what we saw in Exodus. Just as God inscribed the Ten Commandments upon stone, God will reinstate the law upon the hearts of sinful, lawless men. No longer will sin have its way with us, but God will. Obedience to God's moral laws are not a burden for us as New Covenant Christians. They are our delight, our joy, and our honor Because this blessing is the tangible evidence that God has saved us. The power of sin. If you are in Christ Jesus, brothers and sisters, the power of sin is gone. Those shackles have been broken. And now you are bound to another. And that bound, that binding to God, that's freedom. That, when we are dead in our sins and trespasses, that was prison. But when we are bound to Christ Jesus in His new covenant... We are free. We weren't saved because of our good works, but we are saved for the good works God has given us to do in Christ. Brothers, I leave you with this exhortation. Know God's law and love it. By the end of our study on the Ten Commandments, I want everyone that hears these words that come out of my mouth, out of Pastor Wynn's mouth, and Pastor Oliver's mouth, To know that our obedience is a part of God's salvation for us. Don't diminish God's saving work by your ignorance of what He teaches, nor diminish His work because His commands are burdensome. That's the furthest thing from the truth. Brothers, I want you to be able to confess with the whole throng of heaven, as David did himself, and as he wrote in Psalm 119, verse 77, Let your mercy come to me. Let your mercy come to me that I may live. For your law is my delight. Brothers, let us pray. Father, we thank you that you have not left us in our sin. You have not left us shackled to the old covenant in which we can never bring the proper obedience. Not merely so that we can't live in the land of Canaan, but that we can't come to you in fellowship and righteousness in our own state. Lord, thank you for Christ. Thank you for sending your Son who died for us, but has given us new affections through the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, work in our minds. Help us to know your word to love your law, and to be obedient to your commands. Help us, we pray, in Christ's name. Amen.